Okay, so we're, um, I'm recording at Tizard, this is Liz Murphy. Would you like to explain a little bit about yourself and what you do here at Tizard? Um, well, I've worked here for quite some time, on and off, I, um, but um, I started one of the MSc programmes that now runs as the PGIDD programme, and I've done research, I've taught on lots of the programmes. Um, I was head of the Tizard Centre at one stage, and now I'm cutting down somewhat. <laughs> okay. Uh, the work we're talking... Glynis uh, has done a lot of work. I'll put a link to her in our show notes. You can see all of the all of her research. But I, we're just going to be talking about one specific project here um, and its relationship to supported loving. Um, we're going to be talking about the Soxsex ID project. Can you please explain to our listeners what this project's all about? Okay, SOTSEC ID stands for Sex Offender Treatment Services Collaborative in Intellectual Disabilities and it's a group of um, people mainly working in the NHS, um, uh, some in social services, some probation officers who collaborate to provide um, a treatment programme which is essentially cognitive behavioural treatment programme for men with intellectual disabilities who've engaged in sexual behaviour that could be construed as offending. Not all of the men have actually been convicted because um, in some areas uh, police are reluctant to charge men with intellectual disabilities and sometimes they don't go through court even though everybody agrees, including themselves, that they've engaged in some such behaviour simply because the victim has uh, profound learning disabilities and can't give evidence. So we started it probably in about the year 2000 because we realised I worked in a, a learning disability team at the time in the community in South London and we realised we were getting referrals of men with this kind of behaviour and there was no treatment available for them. Um, men who don't have learning disabilities have uh, been able to access treatment for quite some years but there was nothing for men with learning disabilities so we developed a treatment program we adapted um, ones that were available for men without learning disabilities made it easier made it simpler um, made it more suitable for men with ID and we trialed it and we did some research with it and um, it, it seems to be um, pretty successful. It, it doesn't eliminate all such behaviour. You can't say it's got 100% success, but it does reduce the kinds of uh, sexual assaults, rapes, um, and also non-contact sexual offences that uh, men were engaging in. I was just going to say maybe some of our listeners aren't that familiar with the types of behaviours that that people can display. You've mentioned very serious ones that are like rape and mm, sexual assault. Mm. Were there lower level types? Yes. I mean, and it, and it varies a little bit with um, whether men have autism or not. So if I start with men with autism, um, who also have learning disabilities, they very often will engage in what I suppose would be called low level offending, in that it doesn't make contact with the victim, in that it's... Things like stalking, um, 
writing obscene letters, making obscene phone calls, public masturbation. But although that's called lower level, actually it can be very upsetting, especially, um, for example, if it's repeated for one particular victim so that they feel they're being targeted, for example, by somebody who's stalking them. So it varies from that um, right up to um, really serious um, sexual assaults and rapes. Um, the victims of... And, and some men with autism engage in that serious kind of offending, but more often the contact offences are men with learning disabilities who don't have autism. Um, and the victims are very often people with learning disabilities themselves, sometimes children, not so often um, general members of the public. And I think that says something about the access that people have um, to victims and the power differences um, between the offender and the victim. So that would usually be somebody who has less power than them, so yeah. someone else that they're coming to contact with. Yeah. Why do you think there's a difference in terms of the behaviour between somebody who has autism and who's typically not going on to have that, to the more serious assaults? Why do you think that is? Well, I think, thinking about the men with autism who've been in my groups, they will often say to me things like, I really wish I could have a girlfriend. I've never had a girlfriend. I've never spoken to a girl, that kind of thing. And I think they're so scared of social interaction, but they have a sexual drive and they kind of don't know what to do with it, um, that they, they're more likely to engage in uh, non-contact offences. And, and of course, it, I forgot to say, but it includes internet offences as well. Um, so, for example, one young man I know about with autism um, was accused of um, asking a young woman on Facebook to have sex with him over 300 times. Now, he knew that you had to get consent before you did anything, but he kind of hadn't understood that you shouldn't ask 300 times. <laughs> yeah. It must be a minefield for people sometimes to understand. I think the it's rules. really hard for people with autism, especially young lads. I mean, young lads anyway, without learning disabilities and without autism, find it really hard negotiating all the social rules around sexual relationships. And for men with learning disabilities, it's harder. They tend to be rather socially isolated, you know, and, and social things are quite difficult. But for men with autism, I think it's really, really hard because they struggle so much with social rules and they don't kind of absorb social rules like everyone else does. So they're in a bit of a fog when it comes to what they should and shouldn't do. So how does SOCSAC-ID's, you said it's mainly CBT-based, how does it actually help? How does it work to help people to change? Um, what happens is that the men who are, who are um, signing up to, to the treatment come for a whole year of sessions. They come once a week, usually for a two-hour session, um, and it carries on for years. Some men do a second year if, if we feel they haven't got quite got it. Um, and the kinds of things we do, we do a mod, we do, I think it's six modules. Um, one of them is an introductory one about how you want your life to be and, and what kinds of things have gone wrong. Then the next one is about sex education and the law. And then the next one is about understanding that what you're thinking can lead to 
emotions and to behaviour. So that's the kind of cognitive behaviour bit. The one after that is about empathy, because typically men who engage in this kind of behaviour struggle with empathy for the victim. The one after that is about the four-stage model of sexual offending, and it's it's a model developed by a man called Finkelhor, um, who said that in order to offend, you, you have to go through four stages. Thinking, we've, we've simplified the names of the stages for the guys, so the, the names we use for the stages are thinking not okay, sexy thoughts, making excuses, like she's my girlfriend really, or she'd like it, or she doesn't really, she's not really going to be upset, um, planning it, finding a time when you might meet the person, um, maybe going past uh, the park because you know there are going to be kids there, that kind of thing, and then actually engaging in it. And we take the men through those four stages for their offences, trying to work out how they came to do them and how they're going to avoid doing it next time. And then there's a relapse prevention module. The men who start the group find it hard. They often don't want to come to start with. Some of them are required to come by law. Um, others are coming voluntarily. So the first few weeks are quite hard. But actually, by the uh, even after the first month, they're beginning to gel. And by the end of the year, they don't usually want to finish because they're getting a lot of support. Mm. And typically, these are men who are quite relatively able, who get very little support out in the community. Um, so we then... Um, run what's called a maintenance group and the men come along once every six weeks any man who's finished any Sotsec ID group can come along um, and it, it, it's a way of keeping the support going but also making sure that they remember I, I mustn't forget that I'm at risk if I do this or that or if this happens to me or that happens to me I, I might re-offend and I've got to be careful kind of thing sounds like a very like comprehensive program for people to go through and I think that's really important about what you said about having because I know sometimes people it's hard to remember isn't it something that you learned a long time ago especially if you mm. have, have dis a learned disability how many people have come through um the program itself um well our first big research project um altogether we've got about 109 men I think on the database then we stopped actually collecting research data because ethically you shouldn't really put people through the trauma of supposed trauma of, of, of being research subjects unless you absolutely need to. So I suspect about 300 men probably. Um, I'm, I know we've trained over 700 therapists to run the groups and each group typically is run by four people. So there'd be two people there at each session and the, the group of four rotate so that they don't have to run it every week because it's quite hard if you do that and you, you end up with, you know, no group when somebody's got flu or something like that. How, where are they, if, if any of our listeners would like, thinking of somebody hmm. they would like to refer, how do they go about doing that? They can email me. I guess you'll put my yeah. email on. Yeah. Um, yeah, just email me and I'll put them in touch with our assistant. Our current assistant is Emily Blake. Um but uh, our assistants have changed over the years because they're typically young researchers and so they move on to do other things. Um, but, yeah, every week we'll get requests. You know, I, I, I have someone in 
Hampshire, how do I refer him? I have someone in Preston, what do I do? Where's my nearest group? That kind of thing. And mm. it it would be fair to say that our groups run right across um, England, a few in Wales, um, none in Scotland because um, Bill Dinsey used to run treatment groups up there. And we have trained people in other countries to run groups as well. We talked a little bit about the criminal justice system there. Are there many people in your experience with learning disabilities in the criminal justice system who dis- who display this type of behaviour? It's a really difficult question to answer because there aren't very many good studies. There, there's been a very big argument about whether men with learning disabilities and or autism are more likely or less likely to offend in any kind of way than other men. And I think, on balance, the evidence is they're not more likely. The trouble is you have to be very careful in this this research to be sure when someone has a learning disability and when they don't. But suffice it to say, I think, generally speaking, they aren't overrepresented. Um, there's no good evidence of that. Probably one of the best studies was one, for, for certainly for people with sexual uh, offending, was one done in Australia at a time when there weren't very many um, divers- ways of diverting people out of the criminal justice system at the time. Um, and this was research by Susan Hayes, who found in, a, in two big prisons that 4% of the prisoners um, who didn't have learning disabilities had committed sex offences. And 4% of the prisoners who did have learning disabilities had committed sex offences. So it looked pretty similar. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it is sort of said quite often that they are... So why do you think that is said? Well, one of the reasons is some very old data that was collected years and years ago on um, men with learning disabilities who were... Um, detained under the Mental Health Act. Someone did a very big study of all the men detained um, over one year. I think it was in 1963. Um, And and under the Mental Health Act in those days, you were classified as having um, learning disabilities um, or mental health problems or psychopathic disorder. And what they found was that a third of the men detained under the Mental Health Act right across the country had learning disabilities. But when they looked at um, people detained under the Mental Health Act who'd committed a sex, sex offence, half of them were men with learning disabilities. In other words, the men with learning disabilities were overrepresented amongst the sex offenders. But actually, that doesn't tell you that they're more likely to commit sex offences. It just tells you that if they commit a sex offence, they're more likely to get diverted into the um, mental health service than other people. So I think that's where the original assumption came from. And I, as far as I can tell, it isn't true. That Certainly they some of them do commit sex offences, but no more than other men. And I think one of the troubles is that collecting data on how many men commit sex offences is really, really hard because we know it's done in secret. Women often don't feel able to report it, nor do men if they're the victims. 
And we know that the number of people who get convicted as a result of such behaviour is really a small number compared to the number of offences that actually take place. So it's really hard to say how many men in the general population are sex offenders, quite apart from how many men with intellectual disabilities are. I notice we've talked continually through this about men. Is there mm. any... I, I'm, I'm aware that there isn't an awful lot out there about women who sexually offend both in the general population and people have learned... I don't know if I've ever read anything about women who sexually offend. No, you're right. And Sotsek ID is just starting some research on women who um, are said to commit sex offences. Um, most, most psychologists who work in community teams uh, and nurses and psychiatrists will know of occasional women who are referred for this kind of uh, difficulty, but they're very occasional compared to the men. So we know the numbers are very small, but because we now run a lot of SOTSEC ID groups across the country, um, we're planning to do a survey of all of them to see if we can collect a little bit of data, maybe just one person in each area, for all we know, maybe one or two, but it won't be more than that, just so that we know a little bit about them. Um, one of the things I should perhaps have said about men with learning disabilities who engage in this kind of behaviour is that an awful lot of them have been abused themselves as younger people, and that's, that's probably one of the big contributory factors. And I suspect we're going to find even higher rates of that amongst the women, but I don't know. If they engage in, if we know, if anyone knows, but there's generally not, there's not a... Well, no, I, I don't think there is this risk management. You see, what, what happened when we started SOTSEC ID was there wasn't any treatment for the men, but there was only risk management. And very often what that meant was that they would be um, staffed on a one-to-one -one basis, especially when they went out of their uh, residential accommodation. And there would be very... Well, in in if if it was done well, risk management would also mean very careful assignment of people to residential accommodation to make sure that the other people in the accommodation weren't going to be vulnerable to them. Of course, sometimes that wasn't done very well, and sometimes that led to further offences. But yeah, it was just risk management then, and for the women at the moment, it's just risk management now. We've talked a lot about adults. Do you? So it's like ideas mainly for adults. Do you, is there is there anything available for for younger people? Um, yes, there is now. We've um, we noticed when we were running the treatment for men. In one of the modules in the sex education module, you talk about um, puberty for the guys, and they would often say that that was when their problems really started. And the more they talked about it, the more you realise that actually relatively minor problems started to happen at that time and then they kind of increased over the years and nobody actually dealt with it in those earlier years. So together with Rowena Rossiter, um, we developed a, a kind of young person version of Sotsek ID and it's called Keep Safe. Um, the manual exists. I'm telling you like I don't know anything about this. I've actually entered all the data. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do know. Um, the resources exist and some groups have run. We're hoping to run 
some more groups. Uh, they're essentially for people between about 12 and 17. And mostly they tend to be in the older teenage years. Some of them living in the community. Some of them may be in, in secure centres of one kind or another. That's only just starting and so and it's not properly evaluated yet. What were the kind of behaviours that, like, what were sort of the warning signs, do you think, when people, like, when they were starting to show harmful sexual behaviour when they were young? It would depend a bit on what kind of offences they ended up committing later, if you see what I mean. So, supposing someone ended up committing serious stalking offences, then there would be small events of them following people, just for a short time, um... If, if they ended up doing serious sexual assaults, then it might be touching people over their clothes in genital areas, that kind of thing. And then it would escalate if it wasn't. I mean, what we don't know is how often um, people engage in that kind of behaviour as a teenager and then kind of get over it for one reason or another and stop doing that. And how many go on to be sex offenders we don't we really don't know that i'm just kind of thinking about my experience working in social care we often mm. see very low level sexual incidents you know and and then you think mm, if someone yeah. if someone had stepped in earlier you know yeah. it could it would yeah, have been a lot it might have made a lot of difference yeah yeah and certainly in the um research literature on kids who don't have learning disabilities um there's, there seems to be evidence that actually you can make a big difference as long as you step in early. That was going to be my question. So what, what, what could support staff do if they support somebody who they have concerns about in terms of their part, sexual behaviour and, and maybe attitudes around? Yeah, I think whether they're young people or adults, what you need to do is to get them seen by the local community team. The child and adolescent team or the community learning disability team if they're adults um, and probably getting them referred to the psychologist is the best plan. They're very welcome to contact us as well in, and we're happy to help people even with low level stuff. You know it depends on the situation but they may need to find uh, legal advice as well. One last question, I know this is a bit of a difficult question to answer but what do you think are the causes of harmful sexual behavior in in this group i know we talked about possibly being abused themselves i think being abused themselves is a very big part of it but not everyone who's abused turns into a sex offender ways of thinking about victims is a really big part of it so for example feeling that women ought to be uh, prepared to accept your sexual advances that girlfriends ought to do everything you want that even if you've only met them once it's fine to have sex with them those kinds of ways of thinking about the victim are definitely not helpful and the group spends quite a lot of time trying to reverse those and trying to help people um, treat women and children and other victims in a respectful way I think not having, not being socially excluded is probably a risk factor. Not being socially included is probably a risk factor. So if you feel very socially excluded, and let's face it, lots of people with intellectual disabilities are, then you may feel very angry and very 
determined to get what you see as your needs fulfilled and and that i would think was would be a dangerous um dangerous preliminary stage that many of the men go through certainly talking to our guys that, that a lot of them felt like that one of the things you mentioned there about expect seeing what women are expecting what they expect a girlfriend to do over the years i mean you said it started in 2000 we're now in 2017 there's been a massive change in terms of the internet and access to pornography i mean anyone can go online in seconds and find mm. hardcore pornography mm. quite violent hardcore pornography in seconds do you think that that has made a difference to people it's really hard to know whether it's made a difference to people with learning disabilities. It's certainly made a difference to non-disabled people. But people with learning disabilities still often don't have access mm. to the internet. Although that is beginning to change, especially with iPhones. And we've certainly had young men, for example, who were accessing such things uh, in settings where you wouldn't have thought they could. To what extent it's made a big difference i think it's a bit early to say but certainly it's it's a danger that we all have to be aware of and we've just rewritten the sotsec id manual and put some um, material in about internet offending and about pornography because we didn't have very much in the first manual so we're kind of aware of it as a change but i think for people with learning disabilities it's lagging a little bit behind what's happened um, for people who don't have learning disabilities. Mm. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking to me today. And um, thank Okay, you. very nice to talk to you.